0: Oh, and welcome to the latest edition of Galbraith Podcast. I'm your host Matt Finley, and I'm delighted to present our first edition of Energy Matters. Today we're getting to know two senior figures that work within the energy and commercial teams at the firm. Firstly, welcome Rachel Russell, a partner in our Cooper office. Rachel, many thanks for joining us on today's show. That's great, Matt. Thanks for having us along. Uh, great to have you on. It's been a while uh, since we've actually done a podcast, but we've actually had this in the books for quite a while. So um, energy, energy getting at the forefront today.
1: Excellent. Much awaited. So we'll see what comes from it.
0: Yeah, excellent. And joining the panel today is Richard Higgins, who heads up our commercial team working between Edinburgh and Stirling. Richard, welcome to Galbraith's Podcast. Hi, Matt. It's good to be along with you. Yeah. And uh, you should just note for the listeners that he's not in either of those offices today because he's in a layback heading too far for it in his car. So all part of the day job, is it?
2: All part of the day job. Off out to actually see a, a landowner with regards to a battery storage scheme. So very apt and pertinent
0: for this morning. So we're going to take it back and get to know our guests a little bit more. I don't want to offend anybody with uh, with, <laughs> with uh, how long your careers have gone, of course. But we'll we'll start with uh, yourself, Richard. What were the early career experiences, and how really have you ended up in where you are now at Galbraith? Well, yeah, thanks. But come
2: to the older one first. Um, yeah, I, I started my career a long time ago, really in the very early 90s, um, following a postgrad diploma that I did at Aberdeen University in land economy. But I really, my interest in surveying and the land and property started from a very early age because I grew up in a surveying family. Um, with my, my father as a surveyor, I had a practice in Greater Manchester. After graduating from Aberdeen, I worked with a, a large housing and commercial development company and uh, I moved on from there after qualifying to join a practice in Greater Manchester, which is uh, was close to where I grew up in the High Peak. And um, I set up and established a commercial investment and development division within uh, within within that practice. But um, as people often ask me this question, what brought you to Scotland? Well, I, I think it was it was my wife actually brought me up here who I'd met whilst were at university and um we we moved up to Scotland in 2000 where I joined uh, one of the precursors to Galbraith called Clutton Scotland uh, we merged Clutton's and Finlayson Hughes back in 2003 so just over 20 years ago now it's hard to believe it's gone so quickly and I I've been involved primarily in commercial property um in the early parts of my career up until about 15 or 16 years ago when I became involved in a number of energy projects, but I think we'll probably come on to some of that later on. But uh, yeah, so over the last 15 years, I've been carrying out a dual role in energy and commercial. And at first sight, they appear to be very dichotomous. They're not very aligned, but actually there's huge similarities between the two and the principles of of evaluation and management and everything else cross over very, very, very appropriately. So it's been very useful to bring a commercial approach to a lot of the things that we do in the energy fields.
0: And Rachel, you've been with the firm for a few years now. Uh, how is, how's your journey been?
1: Uh, yeah, so I think just entering into my 10th year with the firm, um, I had, I think, what I would say, quite a conventional approach into rural surveying in that I grew up on a, a family farm. Um, I've always had rural interests and been quite actively involved, but knew that I didn't want farming to be my day job. Um, went to university, did undergrad in geography, so kept my options pretty open, um, thought about teaching. Having completed that, I then thought, okay, I'm going to go and do the master's in rural estate management at Sirencester. And that effectively teed me up to complete my APC as a graduate rural surveyor. And having completed that, I joined Galbraith um, as a qualified surveyor in Cooper. So um, I'm Originally grew up in St Andrews, so geographically I've not moved far. But from a kind of educational point of view, I've flown the nest and returned to um, Fife, which is, serves serves me very well in terms of uh, the range of work we get to do, um, and also from social point of view, uh, being back on the family farm.
0: For those listening, perhaps that are graduates or looking to get into the industry, like is that still the conventional route? Would you say?
1: To be honest, we're seeing quite a lot of variety. If if someone's looking to become a chartered surveyor, there is still a need to have an RICS accredited degree. So that is what took me to Sirencester in terms of having the master's. We are uh, still seeing a lot of people coming through the master's in land economy from Aberdeen. Um, but similarly, and I think this is actually shaped by renewables, is we are seeing more talented individuals coming from a more diverse background where you don't necessarily need that RICS accreditation. And that might be someone who's had a changing career and is now looking into you know, a, a utility side of the business that doesn't necessarily need that pre-accreditation that people traditionally got as rural surveyors.
0: And how's the how's the day job then evolved really, and and the industries have, have evolved. How how's that then affected your jobs?
2: Quite a lot actually. In the last fifteen years or so, we've we've always carried out an element of utility work where assets, be it uh, electricity lines or water pipes or drainage cross our clients' land, and we've provided advice on that for for many many years. We did have a uh, a, a number of people that were undertaking work specifically for SSE in way leaving, and I think it was really from that 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 my initial introduction into the energy world came through in the in a project uh, called the Bewley to Denny line, which was a new overhead transmission line. That happened by pure fluke. I picked up a phone call during uh, the financial crash and to cut a long story short, ended up providing about five years of advice to Balfour Beatty, who were constructing the line um, and that ranged from identifying what their requirements were providing surveying real surveying advice and, and then leading into a lot of project management for all of their construction compounds access roads and, and various other aspects of it so we built a team of about eight people at its height just dealing with that one project um, over a period of time it was very very interesting, it's very detailed and rewarding. But from that, obviously you learn a lot on the job and you, you you meet a lot of people and I developed a number of relationships in the industry which has led on to further project work um and a and a much greater interest into what is perhaps one of the most pertinent and important aspects of, of, of where we are today in, in terms of you know our energy supply and 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 how we move it around which is which is driving a lot of our rural and commercial businesses
1: right now, I think just picking up on on that as well, I think it's volume um you know we've we've always had a, an involvement in renewables and utilities, but it's actually the volume of projects that are now you know on, on the table that is driving wh- where we are and our involvement in the industry. I mean, if if we take solar for example, I think in 2009 we were looking at around about 4,000 megawatts of total installed renewable energy capacity, and if we compare that to I think 2022, there was 14 gigawatts. So, you know, the number of schemes that are there is you know increase significantly, and with that is it our involvement in what's going on.
2: I think just going back to the antecedents of the firm, really, you know, with a lot of Estate management, true estate management, with some hydro schemes in it, which have been really you know, a, a very important part of their revenue streams over over a number of years. Um, we've we've dealt with those over the years, but as Rachel was saying, that the number of projects that we're looking at now, and the interests in local generation for farm scale, estate scale, with the opportunity to export more, has has certainly driven. A lot of people, in fact, I'm going to see somebody today just on, on that point. Um, but the, num- the amount of interest driven by the markets on renewable projects has has sort of ballooned significantly in the last four or five years with more onshore wind, more solar in particular. And the current um, technology of the day is batteries, which is where, where they're looking to to help to balance and, and to, uh, secure Supply through the grid, which is under immense pressure, as we'll probably come on to.
0: And you touched on there, Richard, about some of, some of the projects that you work on. For, for A question again for both of you what, what have been some of the your most memorable or favourite projects that you've worked on in your respective teams?
1: I think it's, it's quite hard to pick one, Matt, but um, what I'd probably say is I'm dealing with a number of substation extension approaches at the moment, and what I find most interesting is how the approach is perceived by respective clients. So you might have a very similar scenario, maybe in a different geographical location, but how the client reacts to the opportunity, the approach is is very varied. And that makes it very interesting because our advice is obviously tailored to our clients and the outcome is very client specific. So that I think that's what makes it most interesting is you can never go to a meeting And assume that you know what the outcome is going to be despite the fact that your your background um, advice is is broadly similar so it's yeah the outcome the variable outcomes to to similar scenarios is is incredibly interesting
2: and for me matt uh, pick one um i suppose if i was forced to pick one it would be murray east offshore wind farm which is at the time was scotland's largest wind farm it's it's around about a gigawatt of offshore wind is now operational where we were asked to provide uh, advice and support for all of the onshore aspects of it. it might, the wind farm might be offshore but we've got to bring the, the power onshore and and get it into the grid and that that involved helping the client from the very early stages of, of, of working out how they were going to do it, where they were going to land the cables and how they were going to get the cables to a connection point. The connection point moved a number of times which meant we had to reference large areas of of the northeast anyway that that eventually settled on the the uh, the cables landing uh, near Banff at Inverboindy and then we had a 37 uh, kilometer cable route crossing 41 separate landowners very important uh, salmon river and through a lot of varied ground mostly arable but with lots and lots of constraints attached to it so for me that that was fascinating in actually trying to understand all of the various interests inland and match those in with the requirements of, of our client who was looking to develop what was in excess of a three billion pound project. And it all sort of hinged on getting the electricity into the grid because until it's connected you can't make any any sales of that electricity. That took on a, well, that took in total about seven years to to actually conclude and we managed to negotiate various agreements with landowners um, all by negotiation, which was an enormous um, success and benefit to the the project as a whole. But the enjoyable bit was actually working with the client, just picking up on Rachel's point, where they come at it from different angles with different drivers and different uh, pressures in their day-to-day lives. And we were there to to help to support and solve some of the problems before they even knew they were problems.
0: Yeah, and, and you obviously draw on the experience that you, you have, and you take it into further projects. I'm assuming. Completely, yeah, very transferable skills. It's all underpinned with people,
2: the the people that own the land, the people that are trying to develop it, and all of and the local communities as well, which we can't can't forget. And it's very current actually, in in the market, in the in the news where there's discussions about should people be compensated for being close to large scale infrastructure, particularly overhead on lines. Um, so, yeah, people have concerns. There's a lot of education of local communities. So we we were heavily involved in a lot of the public consultation events, providing a little bit more background in farm speak, if you like, in a language that people of the country could understand and related to them to try and, and give comfort that whilst there was going to be an element of disruption that we understood what their challenges would be whilst they accommodate cables being installed in their land or or infrastructure being developed nearby
0: but inevitably there's an element of conflict which is important to manage this podcast is actually called energy matters we've taken the name if you're a regular follower of galbraith of the energy matters and um, publications now uh, richard and R- rachel you've had imagine contributed to uh, quite a few articles over the last few years have you uh richard's even brought his i think have you you look like you've got an energy matters in you
2: I got it just so I can remember what we put in the last edition,
0: Matt. <laughs> Recently, we we brought out the winter edition of Energy Matters. It came out just at the, at the tail end of October. And what have been the, the main takeaways from it? What, what can people, um, re- readers, expect to see in it from, from both of you?
1: Yes, yeah, so we bring out three publications, as you say, Matt, and it's um, yeah, really just a great chance for us to put pen to paper and cover topical matters. And another great thing is they're accessible on our website, Long after they've been written, so they're a very handy resource for uh, potential clients and existing clients to revisit. But certainly the grid, you know, focuses heavily, and we've actually just as a team done a a review uh, for 2023, and as part of that, we've effectively identified that there has to be a lot of momentum gained in 2024 to see projects that are, you know, we we've got options. Uh, in place with a view to entering into lease, but actually grid reinforcement needs to come as a result. And we're seeing, you know, changes with lights of the tech amnesty, which I think freed up around eight gigawatts, um, helping with these processes. But ultimately, we're needing to see those shovel-ready projects getting moved to the front of the queue if we're going to meet our targets by 2030.
2: We, we decided a number of years ago to to start the matters publications, as we call them across the wider firm. And energy was, was the first one that we, we kicked off with um, because we saw a real need to provide um, informed and accurate, as well as, as, well as um, forward looking um, content to our client base and those beyond uh, as well. And we've always, it's very easy to put out a press release on the, the, the issue of the day. But what we actually thought was we needed something a little bit more in-depth and meaningful um, to to give because it is a long-term um play in energy. It it impacts for a long time. And it takes a long time to get projects out of the ground, as Rachel was just saying and connected up. Throughout the, the years that we've been doing, which is over ten years of publication, we're actually revisiting some of our earlier articles to to look at see where some of our forecasting um wasn't quite where the market ended up, and also to to, to look at things like subsidy which has changed a lot from the initial feed-in tariffs and renewable obligation certificates which have now come to an end and and the newer subsidies which underpin the evolution of the development and progression of technologies being used with central government helping to um, make projects viable through subsidy which then leads to a reduction in pricing and that's been fascinating to follow. We've seen a lot on CFD talked about in the press, that's the contracts for difference subsidy, where projects and developers bid into buying subsidy at a level. Um, unfortunately, the UK government got the strike price wrong for the uh, the last round of offshore wind uh, CFD auction and have recently, within the last two or three weeks, announced uh, a higher strike price, which has reinvigorated the interest of uh, of the industry and in, in progressing forward into the next round of bidding, which will happen in spring. So we're hoping to see quite a lot more activity coming out over the next few months as projects seem to be more viable and uh, the developers can push on with their assessments and uh, and delivery of those projects. The the other thing that that has really struck me as being perhaps slightly underwritten is is how much more electricity, as a nation, as a world, we are using? We, you know, the push towards electric vehicles, much more usage of electricity in homes, and so on, is meaning that the original grid built in the 50s, and 40s and 50s, Scottish Hydro stuff, has been under pressure for years, and the investment needed into reinforcing the grid is huge. So SSE and Scottish Power, acting as the national grid providers in Scotland, have got very long-term plans and medium-term plans to meet the requirements. And uh, that's presenting all kinds of challenges to uh, renewable developers and and us as an industry in in meeting those requirements.
1: And I think just jumping on there, Richard, what we're seeing now is there's a lot of momentum needed because actually the grid needed reformed. Maybe having discussions 10 years ago would have been helpful in anticipation of where we are now, but actually The the need has far outweighed the position that we're currently in. So the momentum that we've certainly seen professionally in the last couple of years has been, you know, quite quite something. And I think it's only going to grow until such time as the projects that we're currently involved in are built. Yeah,
2: and and because of that increase in capacity needed, there is a skills gap. There is a shortage of people, um, both within the grid providers, SSE, Scottish Power. And also in our industry as well, where finding suitably qualified and experienced people is an issue. It is is something that we're looking through our training programs and through our graduate programs to to encourage people to move into. And there's a real long term future in it. It's a very vibrant market, very fast moving market as well. And as we've we've discussed, it's you know it it's engaging it's an engaging career pathway too. So that's what I found really interesting, is, is actually not changing hats, but using your knowledge and abilities to, uh, to deliver a wider service in the en- energy arena.
0: And this is a question again for both of you. Um, what have been the, some of the challenges of growing an energy division at, at a firm like Galbraith that is so diverse, and um, do you have much crossover with, with other business streams? Yes, yeah, so from a commercial aspect, which is
2: my primary, uh, has been my primary area of operation. There's quite a lot of crossover and what's been really interesting in in the last two or three years is the the move for, for large businesses and smaller businesses to, to, to boost their ESG, their environmental, social and governance uh, credentials, which we are seeing lots of green investment into renewable um, areas um, and opportunities. We're seeing businesses such as ours, indeed, looking to really minimise as far as they can their carbon footprint. So as a firm, we've taken on a, a fleet of uh, pool cars, which are all electric. And we've, we've also recently made some strategic decisions with regards to our own uh, offices, where we've, we've moved a couple of offices, where one of the key drivers has actually been to reduce our energy consumption and to make sure that they are av- more available for public transport and different routes of travel um so we we put in i think and i think we probably reported this in other uh, press releases and and uh, and blogs about our installation of electric points in each in most of our offices now um but we are seeing uh, pension funds investment companies and others looking to take a bit of a slice of the action to help with not only their ESG credentials but actually for the real returns that come from these important um, assets of you know, renewable energy projects or even the, the lease and the leases of land create value for the landowners and others. So, yeah, big crossover. And I think one of the one of the other articles is is not is to be aware of the impacts of things like telecoms mass on commercial property, which can restrict future uses and develop redevelopment opportunities. So it's not There are some downsides as well as upsides to to, to working alongside energy and telecoms and, and all of the other infrastructure assets that we deal with.
1: Yeah, and and certainly from the rural side, Matt, I mean, there's huge crossover. A lot of the uh, schemes and projects that we've discussed are land-based. Maybe from the telecom side, we do deal with some rooftop sites, but predominantly what we're involved in is land-based. And as a result, that is affecting rural clients um, and those with an interest in land. So, um, you know, our our crossover is sometimes you don't realise you're working for energy or or utilities or or rural um, because the synergy is 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 complete, but certainly if we look at it from an estate point of view and possibly traditional estate management, you know, renewables and utilities presents a huge opportunity for our clients in terms of diversification. Uh, a lot of clients are looking at it as a way to uh, modernise and future proof their estate, where there are opportunities, um, and, and with that comes discussions on accession or tax planning. A lot of it is is timing based where maybe between generations. We've got different generational views on where they want to take the estate. Um, so we're, we're very much sitting down with our clients and looking at the opportunities now, but also the implications for the future and the wider drivers behind that. And as part of that, take, say, uh, you know, a wind farm, for example. We might have crossover with our forestry team where there's an element of compensatory planted planting needed. So we can pull in resources from across the firm to effectively keep, you know, cater for all our clients needs depending on the um, the task at hand
2: and also on sort of an industrial side where we're acting for industrial occupiers who have large energy needs the the potential for them to take private wires uh, supplies from um renewable energy installations is pretty significant and can lead to good good cost savings for them and that can help to drive some of their locational um considerations before they establish a new new plant or, or um, process, they will look towards it. In fact, we're, we're dealing with two or three occupiers just now where some of the, the key drivers actually is energy supply rather than location.
0: Just really as we start to kind of wind down, we, we, we touched on just earlier on about some of the, the conversations in Energy Matters, um, what have kind of been some of the takeaways from 2023 and really what, what is the conversation leading into 2024 for, for both
1: Uh, Yes, some huge takeaways from 2023. I would certainly say it's been a year of progression and momentum. Um, We're almost looking at ourselves in December wondering how we've got here already, uh, because there's just never been, um, you know, there's there's so much moving. We've discussed a lot on the renewable side, but it's been a a very dynamic year in terms of telecoms as well, Um, some period of stagnation after the new act was bought in as, as people uh, read and interpreted the terms. And we're now seeing a lot of cases being taken to the tribunal, which is now setting precedence to allow matters to move forward. So the key with bringing in the, the new code was the rollout of mass sites and connectivity. And ultimately, unfortunately, with interpretation of wording, it ultimately stalled connectivity and progress within the sector. So what we're seeing now is momentum building um, and, and a lot of work coming from that as a result. Um, and another area that we're very involved in is, is repowering. A lot of sites or wind farms that we were involved in 20 years ago that have got seven, eight, nine years left to run are now looking at the next step in terms of the project so are we thinking less turbines greater output you know there's those landowner discussions happening in terms of are we looking at lease extension so it's great to see some of these projects going full circle and actually modernizing to today's renewables based on what we had uh, at what would be the early days uh, development in renewables.
2: Yeah for me uh, 2023 has been really about It's been a moving change in in people's perceptions about renewables, but what I am seeing is many more landowners are embracing renewables rather than seeing them as potentially an opportunity. We're we're through the pioneering phase and into the the real development phase and acceleration of development as our demands as a, a nation increase. And because of that, it's really important that people take the right advice because The deals available from developers, the the pricing of assets and other opportunities is changing very rapidly. And without that advice, it's very easy to enter into a fairly weak deal because we cover such a large area of Scotland and the north of England. We do have a really good understanding about what developers are offering, what their drivers are and how we can seek to work with them through potential joint ventures and others so that more of the returns can be shared with landowners as well. So I think my takeaway is, take the advice, don't jump straight into exclusivities with developers, but really understand what it is they're looking to do, but how that would impact on your own landholding or other operations as well. And, And have a good think about that. They'll still be there tomorrow. The grid is taking a long time to deliver, so there is a little bit of time. And whilst it's a fast moving environment, The time it takes to get a project out of the ground is lengthening, unfortunately, due to planning issues and restrictions. Local, rightly having local interests um, being taken fully account of into that, but also the deliverability of grid, which is really the biggest issue that we're all facing right now.
0: Well, I think that that leads us on nicely to uh, just the conclusion of our show. Thank you very much, both Richard and Rachel, for joining me in today's first edition of Energy Matters. You've surpassed the test. I'm sure you'll be back on in future podcasts.
1: We'll see. Thank you, Matt.
0: Matt. (laughs) As I said, my my thanks to our panel. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Galbraith Podcasts on Apple or Spotify so you never miss an episode. Uh, Follow us on social media. Many thanks for listening and we'll see you all in the next episode.